Ostomy Nurse Project. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Ostomy Nurse Project. As per usual, I'm Felicity, your host, and in this week's episode, we're going to be drawing away from more of the cancer-related reasons for stoma formation. We're going to be focusing on one of the next most common reasons for people undergoing a bowel diversion, and that is looking at everything to do with inflammatory bowel diseases. So across the next two episodes, which you're going to get over two parts because there's so much information to cover, we're going to be looking at the two main inflammatory bowel diseases that are heard of in this and age and that is ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Now, although the term inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, as we as we refer to it as, it sounds fairly straightforward. There is inflammation um, in a diseased form in the bowel, but there is actually a lot that we still don't know about inflammatory bowel disease. And even though we have coined the terms ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, they are diseases that A, we do not yet understand fully the pathophysiology or or the causes, the true cause of how people develop these diseases. And B, we still don't have a definitive cure for these diseases. Treatment modalities have come a long way and the technology that has been poured into understanding how to treat these diseases is phenomenal. But to this day and age, we still don't have a cure for inflammatory bowel disease, despite the work that is going on in uh, figuring out how to treat these problems. Now, the first type of inflammatory bowel disease that we're going to look at is ulcerative colitis. Not for any reason to use this one first over Crohn's, but it's important to talk about ulcerative colitis so that we can determine how it is similar and how it is different from Crohn's disease, which is going to be into the next episode. Now, if you are someone who is new to the Ostomy Nurse Project, and this is the first episode that you are listening to, you may be a person who has had a stoma formed as a result of suffering from ulcerative colitis. You may be a person who currently suffers from ulcerative colitis, and you may be considering undergoing bowel surgery or diversion surgery in the form of a stoma to treat your condition. You may be a friend or a loved one of somebody that has this condition, and you may want to know how to care for some or even to support somebody if they are undergoing, have undergone or are considering stoma surgery for ulcerative colitis. Or you may be a healthcare professional or somebody that works in the field who wants a little bit more information about how to care for somebody who has a stoma as a result of ulcerative colitis and the benefits or the challenges that a person may face if they have a stoma as a result of ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel disease. Now, in terms of defining inflammatory bowel disease, the easiest way that I can explain it to you is that the immune system mistakes things like food or bacteria in the gut as a foreign body. And the response to this is to send white blood cells as an inflammatory reaction into the lining of the bowel. And the result of that is inflammation. And it is chronic inflammation or long-term inflammation because we continue to eat and we can't not eat. And so this inflammatory condition continues and represents itself. So it is not an acute condition. It's not something that shows up once and goes away. It is a long-term chronic condition whereby the body mistakes things inside the gut as foreign and that it needs to be destroyed or removed. And so it creates an inflammatory response in the lining of the intestine. Now, the word inflammation actually stems from the Greek word for flame, which is literally to be set on fire. So that's quite a fitting symptom for anybody out there who suffers from ulcerative colitis to suggest that you have a burning sensation inside your body. That's probably very true for a lot of people that have this condition. And so some of the symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease, specifically ulcerative colitis, can include diarrhea, often uh, bloody diarrhea or even pus in the stool, uh, a lot of abdominal pain and cramping. More specifically, some people experience rectal pain or rectal bleeding, so in the very end of the bottom in the rectal area or down low in the pelvis. And the urgency to defecate, so that you might have some urgency, like you really need to go and sit on the toilet to have a bowel motion, but you may experience the inability to have a bowel motion despite this urgency and needing to go. You may also suffer from weight loss, fatigue, 
sometimes fever and symptoms of infection. Um, and in children with ulcerative colitis, there is often a failure to grow because of um, some malnutrition symptoms as well. So they are some of the symptoms that people with ulcerative colitis may experience. And when I talk about in the episode about Crohn's disease, a lot of these symptoms are actually very similar, but it's important to distinguish them for each condition so that uh, people understand what the individual signs and symptoms may be of that type of disease. Now, some people that do have ulcerative colitis may have symptoms that are very mild um, through to quite moderate symptoms. And some people in severe cases often have to be hospitalized and treated. And I'm going to talk about treatments at the end of the podcast for inflammatory bowel disease. But uh, depending on the severity of the disease or how big the flare up is of this problem, you may need to be hospitalized to be treated for this condition. Now, to define ulcerative colitis a little bit further, there are classifications of ulcerative colitis according to its location. Now, the thing that makes ulcerative colitis different from Crohn's disease is the fact that it is limited to the colon, so ulcerative colitis. So that's the large intestine. And that can be broken down into several different types of ulcerative colitis. You can have ulcerative proctitis, which is inflammation that is limited to the area closest to the anus, so the rectum. So signs and symptoms of this may be rectal bleeding. That might be the only symptom that you have of this disease if you've got ulcerative proctitis. Now, that form of ulcerative colitis tends to be the mildest form. You can have what we call proctosigmoiditis, big word, I know, but think of the locations. The inflammation of proctosigmoiditis involves the rectum and the sigmoid colon, which if any of you have listened to the uh, previous podcasts where I talk about the different sections of the bowel, so for instance with um, different type, the resection collection or all about the colostomy, it talks about the sigmoid colon being the last corner of the large intestine before it meets the rectum. So proctosigmoiditis is inflammation of both the rectum and the first end part of the large intestine. And the signs and symptoms are largely the same. They can include bloody diarrhea, abdominal cramping and pain, and an inability to have a bowel motion despite having the urge to go. So you may feel like you're constipated. You might have the urge to go to the toilet, but you don't actually pass anything when you go to the toilet itself. You can have left-sided colitis, not our left, your left. So inflammation that extends from the rectum up through the sigmoid colon and including the descending colon. So this is an extension of ulcerative colitis that spans right up to the left side of the colon itself. Now, the signs and symptoms are the same, um, but it would be limited to the left side of the abdomen. Um, you may also experience some unintentional weight loss, possibly due to diarrhea and nutritional imbalances at this stage. And then you can have what we call pancolitis. Pancolitis often affects the entire colon. So pan generally means everything. And that causes bouts of bloody diarrhea that are usually quite severe, where you get a lot of abdominal cramping, pain, a lot of fatigue and lethargy, and you may also experience significant weight loss. Now, another form of that is what we call acute severe ulcerative colitis. Now, that is a rare form of colitis that affects the entire large intestine itself, and that causes severe pain, profuse diarrhea, bleeding from the colon, and often accompanied by fever and an inability to eat. And that's usually where um, some sort of infective processes or sepsis has set in because of the severity of the ulceration and the deterioration of the entire colon. So that just gives you an idea of some of the milder forms through to the most severe forms. They all still come under the banner of ulcerative colitis and ulcerative colitis still comes under the banner of an inflammatory bowel disease. Ulcerative colitis was the first type of inflammatory bowel disease to be separated or characterized away from the IBD banner. So it was characterized before Crohn's disease was in the 1930s. But uh, that's not to say that both didn't exist at the same time. It just happened to be that ulcerative colitis was the, the name given to this condition to separate it under the banner of inflammatory bowel diseases because there's lots of different types of inflammatory bowel diseases we are just focusing on the two most common ones that we deal with today. 
All right, history lesson, because I love histories. I love Stoma's horrible histories. So why not talk about the horrible histories of ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease? Way back in 1859, Sir Samuel Wilkes was the first physician to actually use the term ulcerative colitis. And now shortly after that, this was the time when germ theory came out, which I've spoken about in previous episodes. But when germ theory came out, Sir William White discovered that this condition, or or he created a case series of people that were suffering this condition that he termed ulcerative colitis because there was no evidence of any infectious origin. There was no bacteria that was causing this problem in the bowel. It wasn't linked to cholera. It wasn't linked to any type of um, bacterial infiltration or gastro bug or anything like that. So the, the cases that he put together and he described were stemming from an inflammatory process, although they didn't quite understand that back then in the, in the late 1800s. It wasn't until 1909 that studies uh, or research focusing on ulcerative colitis really started to grow. And um, throughout a lot of symposiums and um, conferences, they really discussed many, many cases of ulcerative colitis. And they looked at things like the, the characteristics or the risk factors, which seem to be, you know, young adults uh, into middle age, young adults were being diagnosed with this condition. The symptoms, so the bloody diarrhea that was coming from the bowel, and even looked at things like the different treatments that were available at the time, which I'll tell you right now were quite sparse and probably not as effective as the ones that are around now. Now, in the same year, John Percy Mummery demonstrated at this time a great invention that had come out, which was the sigmoidoscopy which is obviously a camera or a scope into the colon. This was a safe way of actually having a look inside the bowel. And it was this practice that went on to discover this ulcerative condition of the lining of the bowel. They were actually physically eventually able to see pictures of these terrible ulcerations or these deteriorations and inflammation to the inner lining of the colon that became characteristic with this disease. So that really prompted a lot more research into this condition and that's when new treatments started to come out to treat this inflammatory problem. And that included bowel surgery or resection surgery where they could remove the diseased part of the bowel. And it wasn't until the 1930s that these types of surgeries for ulcerative colitis, you know, eventually became the standard practice. They tried to avoid it um, as much as they could because of a lack of proper surgical technique or advancements in surgical technology at the time. They didn't want to resect the bowel. But once the 1930s rolled around, they really started to discover that surgical necessity was what was going to help these patients and remove that part of diseased bowel in conjunction with other medical and pharmaceutical treatments. Fun fact number one for this episode on ulcerative colitis, some of these other alternative treatments included crazy things like feeding raw small bowel to patients, which they termed organotherapy. They sometimes also used ionization therapy, and that therapy involved irrigating the bowel with zinc and then actually running an electric current through that zinc solution. Ew and ouch, I can only imagine what that did to people's bowels. And inevitably, it was not effective anyway, and surgery became the standard. And speaking of surgical standards, this was the time when ileostomy, or surgery in the small intestine, and things like subtotal or total colectomy became the standardized and popular option for people suffering from ulcerative colitis and that is a practice that is still done in this day and age and there were other advancements to do with ulcerative colitis as well so in the 1940s publications came out which described with actual pictures the uh, the ulcerated abscesses that were inside the lining of the bowel or areas of the bowel that were so thick with disease that they had actually created a stricture or, or a narrowing of the bowel itself So that was one progression. And in between the 30s and the 40s, they actually linked ulcerative colitis to a lot of psychiatric conditions, which is something that's still discussed today. And they still question whether there is an emotional element to flare-ups of ulcerative colitis. Now, Sigmund Freud threw a notion into the mix, of course, suggesting that people with this inflammatory bowel disease had what he called a psychic 
colitis, which was a rage that when not channeled in the normal expressive way would come out in an explosive fit through the bowel. I find that quite an interesting quote. And look, there's some truth to it, uh, as I mentioned. A lot of people with this condition do often link emotional experiences or negative feelings or or moments of stress or times of anxiety to flare-ups of this inflammatory disease. Whilst they don't completely understand it in this day and age, they are still suggesting that there is a link between the two. Fun fact number two, the idea that this psychic colitis existed meant that some people even underwent prefrontal lobotomies to treat such discomforts and they weren't uncommon at the time to have frontal lobotomies so FYI if you had psychic colitis at the time let's imagine that having a little needle stubbed into the front of your brain might actually fix your condition which inevitably didn't it just caused a lot of heartache and problems for a lot of other people but the idea that there is some emotional and psychological connection between the two conditions is still something that is researched in this day and age. Now jump forward right into the 1950s. In 1955, there was a published article in the British Medical Journal which talked about the improvements that were made to people suffering from ulcerative colitis when they were taking corticosteroids when compared to people who were not taking steroids. So steroids became one of the medical therapies that was commonly used and is still commonly used to treat ulcerative colitis and treat that inflammatory process within the bowel. Around this time, a Swedish physician demonstrated results from a study of administering what we call sulfasalazine, which is an antibiotic mixed with an anti-inflammatory, so to speak. It's a sulfur-based antibiotic, which is binded to an anti-inflammatory drug called mesalazine, which some of you may be familiar with today. But the results from prescribing that to patients was actually very positive as well. So the use of corticosteroids, as well as using uh, antibiotic and anti-inflammatory treatment, was showing benefits in treating this inflammatory disease at the time. It wasn't until the 1960s that immunosuppressive drugs were discovered to be uh, a benefit to people with ulcerative colitis. And there was a drug that was abbreviated to 6MP, which is another name for the drug mercaptopurine. And in patients with ulcerative colitis, when this drug was administered, it was found to inhibit cell proliferation or the growth of cells or the inflammatory cells that proliferate in ulcerative colitis. So that was a major discovery. And immunosuppressive therapies are still used and are one of the forefront treatments for ulcerative colitis in this day and age. And the discovery of that drug by Sir James Black and Gertrude Ilion was actually given a Nobel Prize in 1988 in uh, physiology and medicine. So that was a pretty good time for them to discover immunosuppressive drugs and how they can treat inflammatory bowel disease because they're still used to this day. Another drug that you may or may not have heard of that is still used in this day and age is a drug called azathioprine. And that was actually studied and compared to the original drug of sulfasalazine um, in 1975. And that generally demonstrated that the two did the same thing. One of the unfortunate problems um, of using these drugs, though, these these antibiotics combined with anti-inflammatory drugs, was the risk of complications and bone marrow suppression in people who were being given these drugs. So they had to find different drugs to try and combat that in people who were at risk for uh, suppression of bone marrow because they were getting sick when they were being administered these drugs or having problems with their bone marrow production when being given drugs like azathioprine and sulfasalazine. Now, the only other major advancement to do with studying ulcerative colitis over the last 50 to 60 years has been the discovery of the molecular biology or an understanding of the genetics of this inflammatory condition, which has helped to form the the current theory that ulcerative colitis is an autoimmune reaction which is basically like saying the immune system creates a faulty response, a mistaken response to bacteria or or to foreign bodies in the bowel, and it creates this inflammatory response. And so this was when drugs that treated immune responses or autoimmune responses started to get thrown into the mix. 
And these are your drugs like infliximab or adalimumab. Um, they are immunomodulating drugs which are designed to inhibit the inflammatory reaction of some of the hormones and chemicals in our body used in the response of ulcerative colitis to foreign bacteria or foreign bodies that it thinks are traveling through the bowel. And these drugs, these biologic drugs, as they're called, are now used to treat people with very severe ulcerative colitis and even recurrent ulcerative colitis. Now, one of the current very common treatments for people that currently live with ulcerative colitis is the use of steroids or what we call corticosteroids. They're not anabolic steroids like the type you see the guys in the gym pumping themselves with. They are steroids that are designed to actually lower the immune response. They suppress the immune function in the bowel so that that ulcerative inflammation, that angry, painful inflammation in the lining of the bowel is not as strong. And so corticosteroids can often be either administered orally um, or through IV. Uh, for a particularly severe flare-up, you may need to be admitted to hospital for very heavy doses of uh, steroids. You may have them IV, you may have them orally. In some cases, depending on where your ulcerative flare is, you may even have it via an enema or a suppository to get to that area of inflammation and to relieve the symptoms of that flare-up of ulcerative colitis. Now, when you do get a flare, the problem with having these very high doses of steroids is that they are not a long-term solution. They don't, for any instance, cure ulcerative colitis, but they are a means of resolving some of those terrible symptoms that people get. And unfortunately, corticosteroids, when used in high doses, can have a lot of side effects. And these side effects include weight gain. A lot of people who have been on heavy doses of steroids use the term moon face because their face gets really puffy as a result of steroid use. You can get acne. You can experience high blood pressure, high blood sugar. And you can also get mood swings and loss of bone density. Now, Breaching into part of the stomal therapy side of things, when we treat patients who have been treated recently for ulcerative colitis and may or may not have a stoma, the long-term use of steroids makes people's skin incredibly fragile and it can have complications with wound healing. So for instance, there's research to suggest that if a patient has a stoma formed and has been on high doses of steroids in the three weeks preceding that stoma operation, their chances of experiencing wound complications is significantly higher than other people who have not been on these steroids. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be healing complications at the stoma site. If you've had a part of your bowel resected due to the disease and the surgeon has reconnected those two pieces of bowel together in a, in a stapled form or even a hand-stitched form, the stoma itself might not be the problem. It is that site where they've reconnected your bowel that may be especially fragile and you may have complications with healing that area. And that can even be one of the reasons why surgeons would choose to do a stoma formation in the first place. Because if they're concerned about the levels of steroids or the ability for that piece of your colon to heal properly or heal adequately, stoma th surgery might be a beneficial option to allow healing to take place. So whilst steroid use for treating ulcerative colitis is one of the forefront options to treat the condition, they don't actually prevent future flare-ups of ulcerative colitis. And gradually over time, if you keep having these severe flare-ups, the steroids become less and less effective. And there may come a point in your life where the flare-ups are so severe that surgery is your only option. And this is where we start to get into the stomal therapy side of things, um, because a lot of people are opting to have resection and diverting ileostomies when they suffer from severe ulcerative colitis. Now, in terms of, uh, in addition to steroid use, when I spoke to you earlier about uh, drugs that work on the immune system, there are medications that target ulcerative colitis from an immune point of view. And as I said, they are called immunomodulators. And they may be a good option for you if steroids have stopped working for you or if they don't work particularly well for your condition. Now, some of the most common names that you may have heard of are azathioprine, which I mentioned before. The brand names of that is Azasan and Imuran. 
Most of you may have heard of that drug already. There are other drugs out there like cyclosporine, which is Gengraf, Neurol, and Sandimmune. Uh, these drugs are effective in treating problems with the immune system and they can regulate your immune system, but they also have a lot of side effects. So due to the risk of that, doctors usually only use cyclosporine uh, and azathioprine for people who really don't have good success with steroid use. And because they are immunomodulating drugs, they are changing the dynamics of your immune system. So the side effects that these types of drugs can give you are things like liver damage, leaving you more susceptible to skin cancers, things like lymphoma, as well as general infections. They can change your immune system so that you may become more predisposed to developing infections more so than other people would who aren't taking these drugs. And another downside to taking cyclosporines and azathioprine drugs is that they can sometimes take several months to take effect um, or to even work. So sometimes your doctor may prescribe you these drugs in conjunction with low doses of corticosteroids to combat both of these symptoms at the same time. Now, in very severe cases, this is where we start to look at biologics or biologic drugs that work on the immune system, a, much, a bit like immunomodulators, but in a different way. Now, much like chemotherapy, they are very specifically targeted at certain uh, hormones and chemicals in your body. So much like chemotherapy targets cancer cells, biologic drugs target the immune system, but specifically certain chemicals that exacerbate that immune response. So biologic drugs for ulcerative colitis pinpoint a what we call a cytokine, which I'm just going to call it a chemical, a cytokine or a chemical called tumor necrosis factor, which causes inflammation and it has been linked to ulcerative colitis. Now your doctor may prescribe these biologic drugs to you and call them anti-TNF drugs. Now, these are drugs like adalimumab, which I mentioned before. The brand name is Humira. You may be familiar with it. Other similar drugs to that exist, but there's lots of different names for them. But Humira is probably the most common one, especially the ones that we use here in Australia. Infliximab is another one which I mentioned before. Brand name is Remicade, and they are also used to target TNF or tumor necrosis factor chemicals in your system which cause that inflammation in the bowel. Now again, unfortunately, when you take biologic drugs, you can have them via an IV, and often you have to go into some sort of day-oncology center to receive these drugs or some sort of specialist center that can administer these drugs to you. They are very um, specifically prescribed, and there's lots of regulations around prescribing these drugs for people that need them. So if you do have to undergo a course of this treatment, you often have to come into some sort of infusion center to have these drugs administered. The side effects of these drugs, unfortunately, like with all the drugs that we take, there are side effects. You run the risk of developing tuberculosis, fungal infections. There are certain types of cancers that can uh, progress as a result of receiving these drugs, as well as other conditions. So you have to be monitored very closely when you undergo this type of therapy. And a lot of people respond very well to these uh, biologic drugs, but they are almost the, the end of the line drugs or the heaviest type of targeting treatment for ulcerative colitis in this day and age. And often we use those in conjunction with progression to surgery if all of these treatments ultimately do not work out. Now, living with a chronic illness like ulcerative colitis often means for people who suffer this condition that you have to take many different approaches to manage the condition. And so that is often things like a combination of medication, dietary changes, nutritional supplements for people who become quite malnourished as a result of constant diarrhea or a lack of absorption due to inflammation. And inevitably, some people even consider surgery. And whilst the idea of surgery can be really distressing for some people, it can actually help to alleviate some of the, the problems that ulcerative colitis presents to people. And so from a stoma nurse point of view, we can talk to you about some of the surgical procedures or the types of surgery that is used to treat 
not cure ulcerative colitis so that you can have the best possible chance at getting back to a seemingly normal lifestyle, whether with a stoma or without a stoma. Now, surgery may be recommended for someone with ulcerative colitis if they have stopped responding to their medications or if the medications that they're receiving are no longer as effective as they once were. There's no point continuing to pump you full of medications if they're going to become less and less effective with each flare-up that you have. So some patients choose to undergo surgery as an elective option to improve their quality of life and some patients become so ill that it becomes an emergency situation where they either become septic, the bowel perforates or their symptoms are simply so severe that they cannot continue with their daily life until they have a surgery to correct the inflamed area in their bowel. Now, for some people, they may go on to develop what we call sudden severe ulcerative colitis. It may be the very first time or the very first diagnosis of this condition for some people. But this is a complication of ulcerative colitis and is one of the main reasons for emergency surgery for bowel resection in patients that have ulcerative colitis. And with this particular type of complication, this sudden severe flare-up of ulcerative colitis, all of these medications like the steroids and the immunologics and, and modulators and biologics that I've just mentioned are not going to be able to control these symptoms. And these symptoms can include things like uncontrolled bleeding, which can occur from these very deep ulcerations. Some people who have this severe ulcerative colitis can actually develop a condition that we call toxic megacolon. It sounds like a superhero name, I know, but toxic megacolon is a potentially life-threatening problem as a result of ulcerative colitis, and that is often caused by very severe inflammation. And the inflammation becomes so extensive that it becomes very toxic and very large within the colon. And that causes a lot of severe problems that requires emergency correction. So toxic megacolon leads to such a rapid enlargement of the colon that the symptoms of severe pain, abdominal distension or swelling, um, fever, very rapid heart weight, constipation and even dehydration are symptoms of this toxic megacolon and it requires immediate surgery to treat this condition otherwise people can become very sick very quickly and in some cases even die as a result of this problem. Now taking a step away from this sudden severe ulcerative colitis other reasons that people may have to have surgery because of ulcerative colitis can be due to a perforation of the colon which is where prolonged inflammation or long-term inflammation which is caused by these ulcers inside the intestine can actually weaken and thin out that wall of the colon until it gets so thin that it actually breaks through and creates a hole which is what we call perforation and once the colon perforates all of the contents are going to spill out of that hole into the abdomen and this is where you develop what we call septic peritonitis. It is a very serious infection. You can die if it is not treated immediately with surgery. So that is another reason that people with ulcerative colitis may need to undergo surgery to correct that hole in the bowel where it has uh, burst or perforated as a result of the thinning that these ulcerations cause in the colon. So now that I've scared you all with these really disastrous problems that can occur as a result of ulcerative colitis, I'm sorry, I didn't want to scare you all. Let's talk about the actual surgical procedures that can be done in these cases. Now, that's not to say that people with ulcerative colitis will all go on to have stoma formation. If it is a small area that is affected, there are instances where people can have a simple resection where they remove the diseased portion of tissue and they anatomize or they reconnect those two ends. Now, depending on how much of that piece of colon or rectum that they have to take, there may be tension in having to stretch those remaining two pieces back together. And so a surgeon may or may not recommend to a person who's having this done that they may need what we call a covering loop ileostomy or a temporary ileostomy to make sure that that anastomosis or that connection that's been put back together can heal properly. That may not be necessary for very small resections or for colon repairs in terms of perforation and resection, but 
Sometimes if a surgeon feels that healing may be compromised as a result of how much tissue they've had to take, they may suggest a temporary ileostomy to divert the stool away from the body to allow that section of colon to heal properly and in the normal fashion. And then at a later time, you can reverse that temporary ileostomy and restore bowel continuity. If you want more information on that, do go right back to the start of the Ostomy Nurse Project episodes and listen to the All About Ileostomy uh, episode because it does talk about temporary ileostomies and loop stomas. And that will give you more information about temporary stoma formation. But in terms of this podcast, we're talking about ulcerative colitis and the options for surgical intervention to repair the diseased section of bowel as a result of this inflammatory disease. So you may have something as simple as a resection without a stoma. Other surgical options include a procedure called a proctocolectomy, which if you've heard the resection collection episode again, you would know that a proctocolectomy is removal of the rectum and the section of colon that is diseased. And in a lot of cases, that involves the entire colon. Yes, you can live without your large intestine. You would simply live with a small bowel doing all of the work that the large bowel once did. Now, within this proctocolectomy realm, we often call that either a restorative proctocolectomy or an RPC and an IPAA, which is an ileal pouch anal anastomosis. So aside from having a temporary stoma, sometimes what a surgeon may elect to do in consultation with you as the person is a proctocolectomy with an ileal pouch anal anastomosis otherwise known as J-pouch surgery. Don't confuse it with the colonic J-pouch surgery. That's slightly different. But in J-pouch surgery, they use the small intestine to loop it around a bit like the letter J and stitch it in place to become a new reservoir. It's a big long term, but if we break it down, it simply means that we remove the colon and the rectum and we create basically a new rectum or an internal pouch or reservoir out of a loop of your small intestine. So they bring the small intestine down and create a pouch, which then gets sewn to the anal sphincter. So it means that you create an internal continent pouch that serves the purpose of what your rectum once did, so that you remain continent and you can pass bowel motions in the usual fashion. That is another option that some people choose to undergo if they are deemed medically appropriate to have this operation. And even if you choose to have this proctocolectomy with an ileal pouch anal anastomosis, a temporary stoma is sometimes used to make sure that that pouch and that anastomosis or connection with the anal tissue and the small bowel heals correctly. So you may or may not sometimes have a temporary stoma even if you undergo a proctocolectomy with an ileal pouch anal anastomosis. And it's often carried out in approximately two or three or sometimes even four different stages of surgery. So it does require multiple steps to create that ileoanal pouch. One of the other ultimate options that some people choose to go with instead of creating a continent pouch internally is still a proctocolectomy, but with an end ileostomy or what we call a terminal ileostomy. So after removal of the entire colon, so the entire large intestine and the rectum and the anus, we create an end ileostomy from the very end portion of the small intestine. So we don't create a loop or a temporary stoma, we simply stitch the very end of the small intestine to the abdomen and that becomes your permanent exit or your external ostomy. So if this is something that you are considering as a person who suffers from ulcerative colitis or for someone who wants information on uh, J-pouch surgery, you need to know a couple of things. So as I just said, initially the procedure can be done in a couple of different stages. It's not just done in one big surgery. So you will be up for multiple operations. Quite often, as I said, a temporary ileostomy is necessary to create that new pouch to allow it time to heal to the anal anastomosis. So during this time, you might inevitably be wearing an ostomy bag for a temporary amount of time, usually a minimum of three months until that section heals. So you'd have to learn how to manage a stoma in the interim anyway. 
Additionally, when you do have bowel continuity restored, the pouch is not like a normal rectum. And in the absence of a large intestine, the output from that reservoir is going to be quite loose. Because if you've heard the previous episodes before, you will know that the large intestine is primarily responsible for the absorption of moisture. The small intestine needs to learn to adapt and do that over time. What does that mean? When you initially have your reconnection and restoring of bowel continuity, you may initially have up to anywhere from 10 to 12 bowel motions a day. The stool or the output may be soft or liquid like diarrhea, and you may initially have a sense of urgency to go to the toilet and sometimes even some anal leakage. These are some of the side effects of having pouch surgery because there's lots of nerves, muscle and tissue that needs to learn to readjust and take on the role that the rectum once served. Now that ilioanal pouch or that reservoir will gradually stretch and adjust and your anal sphincter muscles will eventually strengthen with exercises, so pelvic floor exercises and adjusting to the new sensation of this reservoir. So in time, the stools will become thicker and less frequent, but that is something that you need to consider, and that is something that you would discuss in depth with your surgeon if you were considering ileal pouch anal anastomosis surgery. Now, for those individuals who do decide to undergo this surgery, you are not exempt from complications. There are complications that can occur as a result of having this pouch formation. Now, inflammation of the pouch is what we call pouchitis, and that is the most common complication of J-pouch surgery. Symptoms of pouchitis may include diarrhea, again, crampy abdominal pain, increased stool frequency, so increased in addition to the increase that you may be having because of the pouch, You may also develop fever, dehydration, and joint pain as a result. And pouchitis is inflammation of that new reservoir or pouch. So just when you ulcerative colitis sufferers thought that you were out of the woods, you can in fact go on to develop pouchitis. Now that is often treated with antibiotics and it does clear it up in some cases and some cases it never truly clears up pouchitis. And for those people, the end product of that or the end result of a failed IPAA or a failed reservoir pouch is that that gets resected and you end up with a permanent end ileostomy anyway. So these are the things that you need to talk to your specialist about if you believe that you may be a candidate for IPAA surgery uh, because there are certain complications that can occur and some people are at higher risk of developing these complications due to different comorbidities, extended length of medical treatments or medicines um, that may render you susceptible to not being viable for J-pouch surgery. Okay, I think that pretty much sums up most of the information to do with ulcerative colitis as an inflammatory bowel disease. All I really want to do for the next couple of minutes is reiterate to you about the stomal therapy side of things because as stoma nurses, we do go on and see a lot of people who have stoma formations as a result of suffering from inflammatory bowel diseases. And ulcerative colitis is one of those conditions that if you have had a bowel resection for ulcerative colitis, There are certain deficits that need to be addressed specifically when you live with an ostomy pouch. One of those things is nutrition. If you have been severely unwell for a significant amount of time due to ulcerative colitis, you may be suffering from nutritional deficits. That may be things like malnutrition, weight loss, relevant uh, electrolyte imbalances because you are not able to maintain your nutrition due to the diseased bowel. If that is the case, when you start living with a stoma, you may be predisposed to developing things like dehydration, malnutrition and electrolyte imbalances due to the output that is coming out of your stoma. And I'm not going to go too in-depth into it in this podcast because I've covered it in an entire episode on dehydration as well as the episode on high-output stomas. So if you want more information, jump back to those episodes. But if you were predisposed or if you had malnutrition or nutritional deficits whilst you were living with ulcerative colitis... When you go on to live with either a permanent or a temporary stoma, these conditions can still carry through and they do need to be rectified and treated as best as possible. On the opposite end of the scale, 
What we do see sometimes from a stomal therapy point of view is if you do have stoma surgery and you live with an ostomy pouch for a while, you can start to live a normal life again. And what people often say to me is that they, they can eat what they want again. They can live normally again and get back to some semblance of a life, which they may or may not have had prior to the surgery when they were dealing with this debilitating condition of ulcerative colitis. So that may also include things like getting out eating well again, putting on weight. So weight gain after stoma surgery is not uncommon for people who suffer from ulcerative colitis. Now that can mean changes in your stoma size, your stoma shape, the dynamics of your abdomen. So through putting on weight, your abdomen might change size and shape. And these things may all affect how we apply a pouch. You may need to start using certain accessories or certain different product types or even a different type of ostomy pouch to make sure that you're getting a secure fit with good adhesion and that you're protecting the healthy skin around your stoma. Because these things can all change if you happen to put weight on or even at the opposite end of the scale if you happen to lose a little bit of weight from stoma surgery. Quite often what happens as well is that people who have been on very heavy doses of steroids to treat their ulcerative colitis, as I mentioned before, can often get a lot of weight gain as a result of the steroids. When they come off the steroids after having the piece of bowel resected and a stoma formation, people often can lose a significant portion of weight again and get back to their pre-morbid condition weight that we call it. And that can often change the body shape as well. So whether it's weight gain or weight loss, these are some of the things that your stomal therapy nurse may need to chat to you about in terms of finding a securely fitting pouch that will protect your skin and allow you to live a normal healthy life with a stoma if you've been previously treated for ulcerative colitis. Now, the only other thing I really want to talk about is earlier on in the podcast when I said that long-term doses of steroids and immunotherapy drugs and other medications to treat inflammatory bowel diseases can leave the skin very delicate and it can leave you predisposed to developing infections. And that's something that we also have to consider as stoma nurses when we are looking after your stoma post-operatively. So in the first four to six weeks after your operation, we want to make sure that the skin around your stoma where it's been stitched to your skin and the surrounding healthy skin remains in that condition. Because what can happen in some cases is that if you are predisposed to developing infections because of these long, heavy doses of medications, the skin can actually break down and you can develop ulcers or wounds on the skin close to your stoma and that can be significantly painful and it can create issues with getting a pouch to stick properly because what you end up doing is having to not only manage your stoma but you then have to incorporate wound management principles into that as well and that makes your pouching regime exponentially more complicated. It's doable but it's something that your stoma nurse needs to be involved in to help treat your condition and fix your skin so that you can get an adequately fitting pouch that doesn't leak and doesn't cause you any further distress or pain with your ostomy pouching system. So if you are a person who does have a stoma and you do develop some skin complications, we can often recommend products like powders, seals, pastes, or even other wound care dressings, hydrofibers, um, absorbent products that can help to treat the wound itself underneath your ostomy pouching system and protect it from coming into contact with fecal effluent. These are all things that we can suggest to you to help make that pouching system as effective as possible if you develop these complications as a result of suffering from ulcerative colitis. Now, what to do if you are a person who is suffering from ulcerative colitis and you want more information than what I as a stoma nurse can give you? Fortunately, the fantastic thing about all this research that has been poured into Crohn's and colitis and inflammatory bowel disease over the years is that it has allowed for the combining of resources, particularly online, to provide support to people that are suffering from these conditions. And this has been going on for about the last 40 or 50 years. In today's day and age where we're all kind of tech savvy and we want some information that we can go to, 
like online where I post this podcast, there are certain groups that are dedicated to the information about Crohn's and colitis and inflammatory bowel diseases. Here in Australia, we have the Crohn's and Colitis Australia website, which you can find at www.crohnsandcolitis, or one word, lowercase.com.au and that is our Australian website that is dedicated to supporting people, fundraising for research into IBD and connecting you to resources about how to manage and live with inflammatory bowel disease. For those of you who are listening overseas, you've all got a similar support group. In Europe, you've got your European Crohn's and Colitis Organization, which is echo slash ibd.eu. In America, you've got Crohn's and Colitis Foundations of America, which is ccfa.org. Canada, you've also got one too, ccfc.ca. They are all dedicated to the improvement of people's lives and dedication to research into inflammatory bowel disease, as well as supporting sufferers of these conditions throughout the world. They can connect you with individuals, with specialists, support groups, other people who are suffering from these diseases. So they are all brilliant websites. Jump online and look them up. If you can't find them, Google's a great place to start. But if you simply look up Crohn's or colitis or IBD, you are bound to find a support group website online. Now, there is also some really good phone apps out there that are dedicated to Crohn's and colitis. There are Crohn's and colitis diet apps that you can find on your phone. There are Crohn's and colitis diaries. So there's an IBD diary where you can track your bowel motions based on things like diet, exercise, medication regimes, etc. There are better health apps dedicated to inflammatory bowel disease. There are support group resources in an app. There are even some apps that can indicate to you, and they're even on the Department of Health website, that can indicate you where your nearest public restroom is or your public toilet. If you are still suffering with this disease, you can have an app on your phone that tells you where the nearest restroom is. So that's fantastic. There's lots of online support out there for people that suffer this disease. So in summary, I just want to reiterate to you guys that the history of inflammatory bowel disease is still progressing rapidly. There is a lot of new technology going into researching about this disease and the overall management of inflammatory bowel disease is changing. There are improvements in surgical techniques as well as there are improvements constantly in the medications that are available to treat ulcerative colitis. So always be on the lookout for that and chat to your health professional if you have any questions about fighting this disease. Unfortunately, again, there is no cure for ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel disease yet. I say yet because one day we will find a cure for it. But in the meantime, be sure to tap into your resources and get the support that you need. If you are a person who inevitably has to undergo stoma formation, make buddies with your friendly neighborhood stoma nurse who can give you all the information that you need either before or after your operation to set you up with the key goals to managing a stoma and living effectively after being diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. I hope you guys like this episode. As I said, the next episode is going to be focusing also on inflammatory bowel disease, but we're going to be looking at Crohn's disease um, and how that all works and the history of that. Be sure to tune in for that episode. If you like the content that you've heard today, you can find us on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Feel free to rate or leave a comment or simply tune in to another episode next time. I'm Felicity, your Oztominus host, coming to you from down under, right where your perfectly unulcerated stoma is. Take care, everybody, and I'll speak to you next time. Bye.